Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. I have a special treat for you today. As you might know, the Washington Library has been putting on live stream book talks since our public closure, and I've been fortunate to host a few of these. And if you'd like more information about our streaming events, please check out mountvernon.org slash livestream. What you'll hear today is the audio version of my recent live conversation with Professor Zarina Zabin of Carleton College. She's the author of the new book, The Boston Massacre of Family History, and I guarantee you'll never think of the Boston Massacre the same way again. I hope you enjoy the program. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight for our latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky. I lead the Digital Center at the Washington Library, and I'm pleased to have you all here with us. On the evening of March the 5th, 1770, Captain Thomas Preston and a small contingent of British redcoats under his command fired into a crowd massing on King Street in Boston, killing several people. Many of us are familiar with Paul Revere's famous engraving of what he called the Bloody Massacre, what we now know call what we now know as the Boston Massacre. But as tonight's guest will illuminate, Revere's depiction of the incident obscures much more than it reveals about the thousands of connections between the British Army and Bostonians in the years before the American Revolution. I'm delighted to be joined this evening by Dr. Zarina Zabin, professor of history at Carleton College and the author of the new book, The Boston Massacre, A Family History. Professor Zabin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. How are things in the great state of Minnesota this evening? They are good. It's still a little chilly. We haven't hit spring yet. (laughs) <laughs> well, we've got, we've got plenty of spring here and plenty of pollen, too. <laughs> well, before we dive in, we wanted to let our audience know that you have a chance to win a copy of Zarina's book. We'll be taking your questions during the second half of tonight's program. So ask us a question during the live stream, and you'll be entered to win. And also, do let us know where you're watching from this evening. We like to uh, know where our viewers are, whether they're in the United States or around the world. And if you'd like to purchase a copy of Serena's book, you have a chance to do so. Check out the link we're dropping in our comments section. Okay, Serena, um, I'd like to begin at the end. You write in the epilogue that the shooting in Boston marked not the beginning of the American Revolution, but the breakdown of a family. And family, uh, as the subtitle of your book indicates, is a central organizing theme. Can you explain to us why that is and what do you mean by a family? Sure, I'd be happy to. So there are two ideas of family that are closely connected in this book that um, that make sense for each other. So the first one is actually literally what we understand as families. One of the things that we forget about the 18th century British army is that it was a family institution that single men, people we think of as single men as soldiers, were not actually the only part of the army that travels around the British Empire. Instead, actually, there are a lot of married privates as well as officers and their wives and their children traveled with them. So when the troops came to Boston in 1768, hundreds of women and children came with them. And then a number of men married local women, made more families, and made also all kinds of families. They um, had they they had children in Boston, and locals acted as godparents sometimes for their kids. So they made sort of fictive families. So on the one hand, we have these actual families of um, 
that between Britons and civilians and in the British Army. And then in the other on the other part, we have also the um, uh, the kind of metaphor of family, which was a really important idea for British political thinking. So in, we know today that we still think a little bit about mother countries and colonies as children and that language, right, that colonies are somehow these children of a mother country is part of the organizing metaphor of family. But when in the end that family starts to break apart, as you noted, right, that this is not just a political metaphor for people anymore. When they start talking about what does it mean to lose your child, right, to talk about ungrateful children, actually people understood this as their own families. So family became both an emotional and a political metaphor. So can you tell us, you know, how you became interested in this topic? And I ask because, you know, historians have written countless books about the Boston Massacre. And as you point out in your book, people began writing the incident almost immediately after it happened. And so, yeah, and, and we've, I would gather that we've framed it mostly in a very political context, thinking in terms of the imperial crisis and the, the breakdown of the political bond between Great Britain and the colonies. What have we overlooked? What have historians, I guess, uh, to put it more crudely, missed that you were able to pick up on in this book? So historians really missed any idea that the soldiers and civilians had any relationship with each other at all. And this is in part, as you said in your intro, because of that really vivid picture that we get from Revere, which is almost the only picture we have 18th century North America. So everyone knows it and it's in every textbook, but even at the time, it was a very powerful image. And what people either forgot or deliberately overlooked were these connections. And so when I came across them, they were sort of hidden in plain sight. People hadn't really bothered to try to cover them up. They just basically ignored them. So when I looked in some of the most obvious places where we always look for evidence about the Boston Massacre, which tends to be the um, depositions that were collected by both the town and the army right after the shooting, which have been in print pretty much, or at least were printed immediately thereafter, and there have always been copies floating around, that that evidence of soldiers' wives, for example, and soldiers sitting in civilians' houses and drinking beer, whatever those connections might be, they were all in there, right in those sources. Just people had never paid attention to them before. That's really, really fascinating. And as you suggest, you know, your book is built on looking at relationships in Boston, but also these transatlantic connections that span between, uh, you know, North America and Britain. So can you uh, would you introduce us to some of the, the characters in your book? Who are these people that are forming these bonds? Yeah. So there are some people that I just fell in love with in this book. So I'll tell you about maybe two and you sure. can let me know. That goes, so the first is the woman who opens my book, a woman named Jane Chambers, who's an Irish woman. We meet her boarding a troop ship in Cork on her way first to Halifax, carrying her child. Um, and following her husband, she goes from Cork to Halifax to Boston and then leaves Boston again. She buries some children along the way. Um, and she herself makes some connections with locals. She, um, Her children actually 
which is um, perhaps a, a moment for us to think about now. Her children get smallpox in Boston. She um, she comes to know and pay a good deal of money to one of the local doctors, um, and she ends up herself and one of her children quarantined um, with smallpox. She survives. I think her child does not, or at least one of them does not. Um, and so she and she sees some of the the harder parts of what it meant to be a traveler in Boston. And then I, another one of the people that I just came to love was a private, a, a soldier named um, William Clark, who's really a rake and and kind of a literary figure too. He he writes a play that he calls the soldier's humor. He calls it uh, the miser uh, right after he comes to Boston. And then he, he meets a young woman, the granddaughter of one of the sons of Liberty um, goes to bed with her is found in bed by her grandfather, um, marries her, um, gets into an altercation with her, with his new father-in-law shoves a pistol in his chest. The father-in-law presses charges, puts him in jail. He gets bailed out by Thomas Preston, by the captain. Um, and he ends up going to New York and writing a tell-all memoir um, about his, you know, his relationship with his in-laws. Um, it, he's, he's just really a ton of fun. I mean, he must've been a horrible son-in-law, but, but I, he was great fun to meet. Yeah, he's, he sounds like a real upstanding guy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not so much. <laughs> Well, and thinking about uh, the question of the regiments, I mean, you 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 just said that your that Jane Chambers and her journey begins in Cork, Ireland. You actually, and for real, uh, in, real, in many real ways, begin your story in Ireland before moving on to Halifax. You know, what what can you tell us about the regiments uh, who actually end up in Boston, and and why are they being deployed uh, to Boston in, in the in the first place? So there's four regiments that end up in Boston. The first one they start with, and the first one that sort of starts moving is the 29th Regiment. That's the one that Jane Chambers is connected with. It's an Irish regiment, but not, and I think this is interesting for people surprised to know it, not a Catholic regiment. In fact, Catholics were not allowed to um, enlist in the British Army for most of the 18th century. So it's really full of Scots-Irish from around Ulster who are themselves Protestant. Um, and they are deployed to Halifax. Um, st- after the Seven Years' War is over in 1763, the, um, the British Crown decides, or really the ministry, mm-hmm. decides that they need to rotate troops around the empire. They've got a big empire now that they need to take care of. Um, they apparently forget sometimes where they've left some regiments. They, they leave this poor regiment in Menorca for like 25 years and people are so desperate to leave. They're like shooting their feet off and, you know, they're just, they're, they're trying to go and they can't. So they decide, okay, we're going to get on a plan. We're going to move people around every three years so that nobody gets stuck somewhere that they really don't want to be. So they move the, they decide the 29th will go to, um, to Canada and they move out some of the other troops that had been there. And they also decide that the 14th Regiment, which had previously been in England, mm-hmm. would also go to the, um, would also get to, go to Canada. So both of those regiments end up there in 1765, the winter of 1766. And they're there for several years before they end up being deployed to Boston. The other two regiments that come, come directly from Ireland, um, less because they're on the rotation than because actually the um, the governor of Massachusetts starts to get kind of nervous about the political situation and asks for troops to come. And so they collect a couple out of out of Ireland. 
So, and you uh, you suggested that the governor of Massachusetts, um, you know, is interested in having regiments stationed in Boston. So that raises the question: Who wants them there, and why? But more importantly, or maybe equally important, who doesn't want them there? So, right. So the governor, so the governor is a man, the governor requests them, a man named Francis Bernard. Um, and yes, he, he wants troops because um, as the British Empire is trying to figure out what it's going to do with this enormous new empire that it's, you know, now God and needs to administer after the Seven Years' War, um, one of the things that they decide they're going to do is sort of tighten up the custom service. And they decide maybe not for the best reasons that they're going to headquarter that in Boston. And there's a lot of protest and both the customs officers and the governor get anxious at the amount of street politics, the number of riots that they start seeing. Mm -hmm. But most of the Bostonians don't really think this is necessary for them, you know, and this is true in a world where not everyone has, and there's no expectation that everyone should be able to vote. Street politics are part of how you show how you feel. They don't think that what's going on is so out of hand. And they really are offended by the idea that they are a place where there's a lot of mobs. They say, we're not a mobbish people. So especially the selectmen um, who are the representatives of most Bostonians are really deeply offended at the idea that troops are necessary. But even the governor's own council is not really backing him up on this. So he's trying to find all these ways of asking for troops with a kind of wink and a nod. He never really wants to say this is what he needs. Sure. Well, one of the fascinating things I found about the book is that Thomas Gage, who's commander-in-chief of, of British forces in North America, and I, he, he's always been a fascinating figure to me, but I, I love the way that you portray him in your book because it's very clear he really doesn't think this is a good idea, or at least he he's really... He's wanting the, the civil authority or and the governor to explore all other possible alternatives before asking for troops. Yeah, because troops in an urban setting are a bad idea. And I know that we often think about contemporary policing um, when we think about what happens when you've got just too much firepower in a city. Um, and, you know, and that's sometimes a helpful metaphor for us to think about or a helpful comparison. But really, it's not so unusual in the 18th century. There's no police force, right? There is no police. Sure. So, I mean, there's some constables, but there's no police. So um, administrators of cities or whatever, you know, um, magistrates, those kinds of people, they're always asking for troops to back up their authority because there's a lot of riots and there's a lot of smuggling. And for those two things, they use troops. And that's true in England as well as in North America. But almost every single time, as soon as magistrates ask for troops, they're like, oh, we didn't really need it. We uh -huh. don't want them. Please take them away. They're actually a lot of trouble. And officers especially hate, hate being sent for urban policing. And so the minute they get to Boston, they are all asking for home leave. Like, Please get me out of here before this ruins my career. And which, of course, is what it feels like happens to Thomas Preston. So how does that compare with uh, where they were in Halifax prior to that, at least some of the regiments? Because space is an important part of your story. They're confined in this very tight space in Boston on the peninsula. You know, we have to remember that back then Boston was the peninsula. Whereas in Halifax, there's a little more room for Rome, but it's it's not as pleasant in terms of um, accommodations, you might say. 
Not at all. Right. So Halifax feels like the back of beyond, right? So to any Canadians who are there, I, I, there, I had the most pleasant months doing my research in Halifax. It's not like that now. But then yeah. people complained it was just like a bunch of huts, you know, on the edge of this cliff. And, you know, they complained people are sleeping in like leaves because all the wood rots. It's also wet and it's freezing cold. But yeah. yeah, they're also sending little detachments of troops out to other places. So there's not that many troops there. And Halifax itself is very, very small. There's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a city. So even while they're there, officers who are allowed to all are asking to spend the winter somewhere else, either in New York and often in Boston. Sure. That's where the fun is. Yeah, <laughs> it's about to get to a lot more fun soon. Uh, one of the things uh, I want to circle back to, and it kind of picks up on some threads that you've uh, already established, is the fact that women are are an important part of your story. You know, in your book, I think, really challenges the notion of women in the army or, or associated with the army as camp followers, or simply people who are doing the washing, doing the mending, prostitutes, things like that. They, as I said, they're central to your story. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, how and why? Sure. So, yes, I I really did. Um, I, re- I do take offense at that idea of camp follower, sure. largely because that's a, um, a term that came often from officers, right, at the time who just thought that any woman who would marry a private was, you know, kind of no better than she should be, right? So they they often acted as though they were prostitutes. But in fact, these are, um, you know, these are people. And I wanted to take them seriously um, as women, as mothers, as wives, right? As people trying to live their lives in an empire that they tended to experience as, you know, a little bit impersonal, right? That tended to pick them up and move them places. Um, But that was their life. But yes, it seemed to me that once we noticed that women were part of this story, that actually changed everything. It changes what we understand about the revolution itself, as well as what we understand about the Boston Massacre, that by acting as though this is a conflict between, you know, some like board guys with guns on the one hand and like some board guys with snowballs, um, we actually miss, which is pretty much the story we always tell of the Boston Massacre, um, that we really miss what Boston was like and actually what the revolution would become. Can you tell us more then about the bonds that people are forming? You know, you sort of alluded to some of these earlier. What are the consequences of those relationships? So, you know, um, they so so people meet. Right. And they sometimes find each other incredibly annoying. So some of the bonds they form are of hostility. Right. Yeah. Where people are, you know, making crude remarks about each other, you know, um, calling, you know, essentially the equivalent of calling the police on each other. So there are these accusations of disorderly houses uh, where they complain that, you know, their neighbors they're, are now too, too loud and, you know, drinking at all hours. Um, so there absolutely are some hostile relationships, but they also meet, they marry, they have children, sometimes without marrying. Right. As I said, they have people 
godparents, they break out of jail together. One of the most interesting things I found is that single men tend to desert in order to make and stay with new families um, all over Massachusetts and into New Hampshire. And when they do that and they're found, sometimes their new communities turn out to try to protect them Mm -hmm. against the army. Um, So they make these connections. And then when the troops are redeployed, which happens either because it's time for the rotation or especially after the shooting when um, the What the town of Boston is clear, the 29th Regiment has to leave. Um, Then families are faced with some pretty hard choices, right? So their choices are either that, especially if they've made new families in Boston, that um, men can stay, right, Mm -hmm. their new families, which is called desertion. Um, And, you know, men leave with their army, with the army, and women stay with their natal families, uh, which we call now self-divorce, Right. They just leave and they did sometimes remarry. But that was they they were certainly in the poorhouse for a few years after that. Or the new, you know, those new wives would leave with the army. And I think of that as little shards of Boston that are now embedded in the British army traveling around the British Empire in those just couple of years now before the revolution begins. Sure, sure. Well, what are some of the punishments for desertion? I know that there were a couple more extreme examples that uh that occurred in your book, but then there's also some more uh, negotiation might be the proper word to roll people back into the fold. So there's a real range. The first, one of the very first desertions, um, partly because the officers are terrified at the number of people who are leaving in the first couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. Uh, they find a young man who maybe went to find some family um, and they shoot him. Um, and so he shot on the common, which is, you know, for desertion in peacetime is, is shocking. And yeah. the town of Boston is, is shocked. It's really, really horrified. Even people who are prepared to really support the governor and the troops. Um, and yes, sometimes, you know, men are, um, men are given a punishment of, you know, 500 lashes, which is pretty much a, you know, death sentence by beating. Sure. Um, and then sometimes they say, you know what, actually, we're just going to have a, an amnesty, right? It's like, you know, it's like library books or something. If you just come on back in, right, we will just pretend the whole thing never happened. Um, and they try that. They don't get a ton of guys back. They get some, um, but not a lot. So it's, um, you know, these aren't guys who've just gone walkabout, I think is what's hurt. What a, one of the fascinating things, I think, the things that you have pointed out too is that a lot of these guys who are deserting, or not a lot of them, but some of them are deserting to people who have the same surname. So the implication there is that they are part of that family in some capacity. Right, right. They're looking for family. Certainly, one of the guys who um, who ends up with a um, you know being uh, with lashes, you know, who's being lashed to death is um, from outside of Boston, from Marshfield. You mm-hmm. know? listed um during the seven years war he came home just to see his extended family um his sisters come find him you know lying face down with his back one of the letter writers says like a you know looking like a piece of beef Robbie. yeah well and you mentioned letters one of the things i was curious about is you know, what kind of sources where are you finding these stories so the sources were a wide range of things. So I had some letters, absolutely, uh, largely from Bostonians. Um, 
Thomas Gage has amazing letters, some of which have been published, some of which have not. And all sorts of things are embedded in there. And lots of people send letters that were then folded in there. So there's letters from, you know, a magistrate in New Hampshire who might talk about a deserter, various kinds of things like that. Um, for, for privates, you get a lot less, right? So for privates, I really had to look in other kinds of records. I found a lot in the church records, which was so surprising to me. I found a lot in the court records. Um, and then the other thing that is was amazing that has hardly been touched is um, are the receipts. So the British Army kept all these receipts for how many rations they're giving out. Um, and those are just sitting in Michigan, of all places, um, waiting for someone to work with. And that's one of the places I could see how many women and children were traveling. Well, there's a real question, right, whether or not the, the British state should support these families or whether or not they should just um, support the soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. So the British state, uh, the ministry understood that there always need to be a certain number of women that they should pay for, that there was a certain amount of work that they thought women should do and tended to be largely laundry, not cooking, which is one of the things that I think surprises a modern audience, right? That men are fine with cooking, but they won't do laundry. They just won't do it. Um, So um, they'd rather get lice, which apparently is exactly what happens to Washington's army when he tries to keep women out of the army altogether. Um, So they they understand there need to be a certain number of women, and that's perfectly perfectly acceptable. But then the question is, what are they going to do with all of the other women? How are they going to decide? And what, you know, who gets to come every time they move? And really, it turns out that the commanding officers are really pretty soft hearted about it. So they pretty much say, oh, we'll just take everybody and, you know, we'll worry about it when someone complains. And sometimes people complain and sometimes they don't. Right. Um, But for the most part, they are um, they're much more flexible than the official rules would imply. Mm -hmm. So they're more inclined to ask for forgiveness as opposed to permission. Absolutely. And their argument is that it's better for morale and it's better for desertion, right? When, when they get pushed, sure. they just try to keep their heads down. <laughs> oh. Hey, you, you, uh, you briefly mentioned lice, which is uh, one pestilence. Uh, but I'm curious to know uh, what kind of uh, uh, health effects having the army in proximity to Bostonians had in this period where they're uh, diseases that broke out? Were there other kinds of uh, uh, public health concerns that, that worried the army and the citizenry? The major one is smallpox. So it's not quite an epidemic. Um, it's an outbreak, I think we would call it. And there's a lot of um, finger pointing about where it comes from, not surprisingly, right? The army says, oh, we don't have any. And they're like, oh, maybe there was a case. And maybe some children died actually on the ship, but we, we've cleaned it out. Um and, you know, the, um, the Bostonians are never very pleased with those answers. Um, so, but, and yeah, so smallpox will move through Boston and it doesn't um, discriminate between civilians and soldiers and soldiers' families. What does discriminate though is the town of Boston. So if you are, um, you know, if you're a Bostonian and you've got enough pull, you can say, well, actually, you can't send me out to this like nasty quarantine hospital in the middle of Boston Harbor. I'll just stay here. 
Revere does this um, and some other people do too. Um, they'll just say, just put a white flag in front of my house and, and I'll stay home. Um, but soldiers and poor people have a much harder time pushing back. And so they tend to be sent away from their families to these quarantine hospitals. Oh, I understand. Um, and I guess some, some ways things have not changed in, in yeah. one way, really. Well, we're, we're coming almost to our uh, audience Q&A session, but I do have a couple more questions before we get to that. So audience, please get those questions in and get them ready uh, because we're excited to hear from you. But I do want to take us to the events of March the 5th. Can you, can you tell us what happened on Queen Street on that night? Maybe. Uh, I <laughs> So it's very hard to know what happened that night. I think maybe it's important to set the scene a little bit to remind sure. us that, you know, as you started off by saying, you know, Boston is a peninsula. It's only about, you know, a mile, um, a square mile. But it's also it's March um, and it is still um, and it's about nine o'clock at night, maybe 30. So it's dark. Boston doesn't yet have streetlights. Right. Um, there's snow on the ground. There are, you know, we're now we're right in this heart of Boston. There's a lot of houses and there may well be some bits of light coming out of people's houses, but it's dark and it's hard to know what's going on. So what we know is that there is a sentry in front of the customs house, which is right kind of kitty corner from what's now the old state house, what was then the townhouse, the seat of, of provincial government and royal government. And um, some people walk by, some of whom he knows and he asks them how they're doing and some of whom start to hassle him. He gets a little nervous. Um, he calls for backup just a few Yard, tens of yards away is um, kind of a place where what they call the main guard where there are some soldiers and the captain of the day um, ends up leading out a handful of soldiers. We don't actually even know for sure how many, right? Whether seven or eight is actually something we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but they, they line up, they support the sentry. Um, the captain tells people to back off. Um, that probably doesn't happen. Seems like more people come out to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. People are walking after the soldiers, people who know them well, they're like, Hey, what's the deal? Right. You know, they're talking to each other. They're all quite close. It's not that line that we see in the Revere image. And at some point, someone yells fire. It's hard to know whether someone is saying there's a fire, where's the fire, um, or yelling at the soldiers, you don't dare fire, or whether there was a command that said fire on these civilians. All we really know is that when the smoke cleared, there's five people dead and dying in the snow right in front of the seat of government. It's like watching people bleed out in front of the Capitol or something. It's horrifying. Um, and the other thing we know is that a lot of the people on the street knew each other that night. Sure. Right? That those soldiers all knew somebody who was out there. Um, but do we know where to lay the blame? No. That piece, I think, we'll never know. Well, and the, one of the things that happens in the trial of Captain Preston and his men afterwards is they try, at least the prosecution, the Crown prosecution, which ironically is prosecuting their own men, they have to try to establish blame. But uh, uh, that trial features... Uh, a who's who of Boston, uh, Boston legal minds, you know, John Adams, Robert Troop Payne, Samuel Quincy. What's interesting, though, is that the trial, uh, I found, they, they work actively to try to erase those connections that you spend the entire book showing. Why? What is their purpose 
on both sides, both prosecution and defense. Why do they do this? Right. So both sides are really, they're investing in this question of blame, mm-hmm. right? I mean, then that's what a trial's about. And so in order to prove blame, right, they need to show that someone is the victim, right? Someone's an innocent victim and someone's at fault. And so it's too messy to show that people all know each other, right? That um, that there's no clear line of demarcation between one side and the other. So both sides are kind of invested in this idea that, you know, there's soldiers here and there's civilians there and somebody made a mistake, right? Um, and And when they do that, that's sort of the beginning of the kind of politicization of this moment and the part that really erases women and children from the story. Makes it a much cleaner story for both sides. And then yep. this uh, Paul Revere's engraving, I guess, does the same thing. Exactly. Does It does. So And so there's, you know, it, it's a pretty um, complete erasure because you've got the picture and you've got the trial and you've got all those depositions that are being taken and they all do their best to erase that story. Sure, sure. Well, I could uh, keep asking questions all night, but I know that our audience has several. Um, so let's uh, let's see what the audience is interested in, in uh, talking about. Here, uh, Laura would like to know your book does such an extraordinary job of exploring the number of marriages between British soldiers and Boston women, and tracking how often there was overlap between the members of the military and civilians in the choice of godparental christenings. Did you know what you were looking for when you went to the, into the church registries in Boston, or you, were you surprised by what you found when you started exploring, which is a terrific question. That is a terrific question. I was surprised. I started with um, the most obvious of all, which was were those printed um, depositions where I saw somebody talking about a soldier's wife and I was like, what's a soldier's wife business? And so I didn't even know soldiers had wives. And so I, so I started looking and my very first day actually in the Boston archives, which was felt like a sign to me or something. I found a really explicit marriage record when that said, you know, um, that actually I'm trying to remember who's, but identified actually the soldier as a member of a regiment and, you know, a woman said of Boston. And I think I found three that morning. I thought, okay, this is right here. And that was really exciting. It was harder to find the christenings. I couldn't do that until I went back and I found the names of all the soldiers. I found the muster rolls in London and I made this enormous database. And then once I had the names of all of the soldiers, I cross-referenced them against all of the um, christenings in Boston that were recorded for those years. And then I could figure out who was there. So then I started actually looking. Um, But the first one just kind of appeared to me. Um, It's always nice when that happens. It was amazing. (laughs) Well, Laura, thanks for your question. Let's see. Uh, Elizabeth would like to know, can you speak to the conditions of the common soldier? Were they really quartered in houses? And did uh, did that escalate things that led to the Boston massacre? So, um, yes, that's a great question. And they truly are quartered in houses, not in the way we think of when we think about, say, the, you know, um, the quartering act. Mm-hmm. But but there, the, what happens is the army ends up renting space from Bostonians. Originally, the um, the Quartering Act, the 18th century British Quartering Act said that, well, troops have to stay in barracks if there are barracks. And Boston had built these really, Massachusetts had built these really nice barracks during the Seven Years' War at Boston Harbor. They're like, 
you should stay there. It's, they're really nice. We just refurbished them. And the governor says, I can't, you, I can't ask troops to do police work. They can't protect me if they're seven miles away um, by, you know, by foot. So um, the compromise they come up with is renting space from Bostonians. And so they ask Bostonians who have extra space in their houses or their sheds or have an extra house or an empty warehouse mm-hmm. to um, give that space for money to soldiers. So so then we have a whole lot of landlords and landladies. And so partly that escalates things. As I said, you know, they get to know each other pretty well and they find each other annoying. <laughs> but sometimes it escalates things because like in my story of, you know, um, a private Clark, right? He meets a young woman. She doesn't seem too unhappy about it. Her grandfather, on the other hand, is deeply unhappy that, you know, this soldier is sleeping with his granddaughter in his daughter's house. Um, And so the escalation we have to maybe break down, is it just, is it all Bostonians or is it just some people who are not so happy about soldiers? Well, if I can ask a follow-up then, uh, who's renting to the army? Is it simply people who are pro-government? Is it people who will become liberty men or is it all of the above? It's all of the above. It's everybody from a man named William Molyneux, who's known as sort of one of the major sons of liberty, whose name comes out from the governor as like the guy who should be hanged right next to Hancock, right? Um, to, you know, um, a, one of the governor's best friends who's got an empty warehouse. He's like, oh, I'll rent that out. That looks good. Um, and everyone in between. You, some people are quite poor. We're really happy to rent their sheds. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Lindsay Chervinsky wants to know, one, what was your favorite discovery? And two, what was the thing that surprised you the most in your research? Oh, let's see. Those are, those are um, unusual questions. They're good ones. So my favorite discovery, um, oh, I think there's, you know, I think it's when people show up multiple times. So, you know, I had come across Jane Chambers first in the smallpox records. And then, um, you know, and then I found her on the troop ship records and I, and then I found her bearing a child. Um, and those, you know, that was a wonderful, I'm a sad moment because I gotten to know her and love her, but I, um, but it, but it was kind of wonderful to see, be able to, to move around the British empire with her. And I think the thing that surprised me the most was how revealing the desertion records were. I had no idea that desertion would be a good place to look for a story about a family history, but it turned out to tell me so much. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay. Who's next? Faith would like to know how many of the British soldiers or their families stayed in the colonies. That is a really good question. That's pretty um, tough to answer, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in terms of numbers, especially once we break down their families. Um, I would say that, you know, the vast majority of the soldiers do leave. Um, So, you know, maybe 10% is what we're talking about with desertion. Um, And so we could figure about 10% of the soldiers roughly over all four regiments, especially the 14th and the 29th, um, stay in 17, between 1768 and 1772. But actually then the 29th regiment comes back later during the um, revolution to Canada and a fair number stay after the war ends there. And those I can't trace. Um, and, but I think a really interesting question would be to know the yeah. degree to which they 
remake those connections to Boston. That I don't know, um, but I think is potentially interesting for someone yeah. to take part. Well, if someone's looking for a dissertation topic or a research topic in general. I'll share my database. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Brandt would like to know, what role did your digital mapping project play in the evolution of this book? And, well, we might ask you to explain what your digital mapping project is. I will. And is it fair to say here in this, like, broadcast that Lindsay Branch actually helped me with this digital mapping project? <laughs> Um, sorry, I got it. So, um, one of the things that, um, that I tried to play around with in the very beginning, when I started finding those, um, especially the christening baptism records is I tried to figure out, well, how did people know who to ask to be godparents? Does what does proximity tell us? So we did our best to try to figure out where exactly everyone lived, um, where all these soldiers were renting spaces and where other Bostonians were who were godparents, where all the taverns were. Um, and so we found, got this big digital map of Boston and especially looked through the warning out records, which turn out to tell you a whole lot about where people lived um, and, um, we tried to plot, we managed to plot hundreds of people living around Boston. Um, and so as, as I saw those take shape, I realized that proximity couldn't tell us the story we wanted to know, but what it did tell us actually were that soldiers were living all over Boston and that there's not a single neighborhood that did not have a no well um, soldiers who were marrying with the marrying with their, you know, with their neighbors. Um, so that's what it really told us. And you, you briefly mentioned warning out records. Could you touch on those for just a moment? Absolutely. Sorry. Um, so, and those, I, I really have to give a shout out to Cornelia Dayton and Sharon Salinger, who wrote a brilliant book um, called um, Robert Loves Warnings, I believe, um, where they, they're the first ones who really made sense of these records. So, um, in the 18th century, poor relief was dependent on where you were born. Mm -hmm. And so um, towns didn't want to have to pay um, poor relief to people who were not born there. So if they heard about people who were um, who recently come to town um, and they feared, or sometimes even if they didn't, that they might eventually need poor relief. The selectmen actually had a guy that they hired. It happened, oh, the Warner, his name happened to be Robert Love during much of this time, who would walk around and just warn people. If you like, by the way, if you end up needing any help, don't look to Boston. We will not pay for you. You weren't born here. Um, in fact, that's much it's not as harsh as it sounds. Um, Massachusetts had a, a sort of separate pocket of money that it paid for people who needed poor relief. It's not that they kicked these people entirely into the street. But when Robert Love walked around, he very carefully recorded where he went, who was living there, uh, the names of the kids, everything. So those are amazing wow. records for where people lived. That's oh, amazing. People. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mark would like to know, as an elementary school teacher, what inaccuracies can I remove from the story of the Boston Massacre? Um, that is such a fabulous question. So I'd say there are, um, I'll say three, okay? okay? So one is maybe the most obvious one that you probably already know, which is the big label Butcher's Hall on top of where the Customs House is, right? And so that's probably the one that everybody's like, we know that one is not, you know, it never said that. And that's just an indication 
of, you know, where Revere thinks the blame should lie, which is on the customs officials and the British ministry. Um, so that's the obvious one. But I'd say the other one, um, there, there are two, right? One is this idea that the soldiers are kind of all lined up on one side of the street with, you know, Captain Preston sort of safely behind them, right, um, waving them on. There is no way that anything that organized happened. It just didn't look like that, right? Um, and then the other one that, that I really do believe is maybe the most vivid that you can help students see is that if they really look at the picture, they'll see right in the middle is the gun smoke, right? All the gun smoke that comes out of those um, out of those guns. And it makes this big white dividing line between the soldiers on the one side and the civilians on the other. And that's the real inaccuracy that Revere wants us to believe, that there's soldiers one place and, you know, and um, civilians, and they don't know each other. They don't cross that gun smoke. They don't cross the street from each other. And both you know, actual, actually and figuratively, that's the real inaccuracy of that image. Well, thank you, Mark. That's a great lesson there on how to pick apart a primary source. Uh, Danielle would like to know, you discussed family and the different types of families that were included in the British Army. Did those soldiers and their families tend to get caught up in the politics of the day? I'm especially curious about the soldiers who married Bostonian women. Did those men sympathize with Bostonians? Yeah, yeah it's a great question. So, you know, I think the most important thing to realize is that in 1770, nobody's talking about revolution, mm -hmm. right? Still really early. That term loyalist, that's not, that doesn't really come into play until after the Tea Party, right? So they maybe talked about supporters of government, supporters of the governor, but that got a little personal too. Like, did you like the governor? Not that many people did. Um, <laughs> and so it, you know, it, it's a little hard to say precisely because people's politics are all over the place. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say that we certainly have evidence of soldiers who stay, who married locals, who join the Continental Army or in other ways fight for the um, the revolution, right, as we would see it. Um, mm -hmm. So in that way, yes, you can see that they're connected. But of course, there are people who marry Bostonians um, and those Bostonians, when push comes to shove in 1774, decide that they really are loyal to the British government, right? And they end up actually often going to Halifax in 1776. And those um, soldiers, you know, went with them. So it's not that there's a Boston side and a mm -hmm. civilian side. But yes, I think that um, sometimes soldiers are, you know, do feel the sympathy with their families, but the families themselves are torn. So it's hard sure. to know. Well, if I remember rightly, Henry Knox's wife, Lucy Knox, her family was terribly divided and she never she never speaks to her sisters or her family again after after they decide to vacate to Maine is that correct absolutely well her sister and her mother um her sisters i think and her and her mother's do they end up leaving they go to canada actually so she marries right henry knox who's going to become you know the secretary of war for mm -hmm. the united states and her sister marries um an officer named james urquhart who is in the 14th regiment and who becomes actually the guy sort of in charge of shutting down boston um after the tea party um and yeah they they actually mainly communicate through um through henry later about you know about somebody but the sisters never see each other again and they find that really sad they yeah. talk about that as a war of sisters against sisters yeah that's a good example of that certainly thank you danielle 
Oh, Alexis Coe would like to know, first of all, congratulations on such a wonderful book. You introduced us to so many new stories and historic actors and surely had to put some aside. Tell us about someone who didn't make it in, in or you tucked into a footnote and if you have any future plans for them. Oh, that is a great point. And actually, I will say, and I think not just because she's on the top of my head, but the um, the Fluker sister, who I think is a Han- Hannah Fluker, who marries um, who marries James Urquhart, actually ends up divorcing him later in Scotland. And, um, and she's accused of having an affair with another officer. And that is a story that I so want to tell. I actually did finally get the divorce papers um, from Scotland, but a little bit too late to go in the book. So I feel there's a little bit of, um, there's certainly a scandal there that I would love to uncover, whether it's really fair to publicize it at this point i don't know but yes i think um i think there's something exciting going on with hannah flucker well we look forward to that next book (laughs) thank you alexis uh bobby would like to know did you find that crispus atticus's uh, ethnic origin played a part in his posthumous honors as the first death of the revolution oh thank you that is a great question so um i think and that Crispus Attic's ethnic origin really becomes important later. It becomes really important in the 19th century, especially in the years moving up to the um, Civil War, but certainly in the kind of abolitionist moment in Boston, when they are looking for reasons to be able to say, listen, African-Americans have been part of this country from the beginning. And so, um, you know, they need to be thought of as a piece of um, of our important history and especially our important Massachusetts history. So that's the moment that they really start to claim Christmas addicts as this kind of first death of the revolution as part of an argument for the union. Right. And then later, actually, um, he gets picked up, you know, and really strongly, especially in Boston, there was a Christmas Addicts Day, which I think um, Revolutionary Spaces is trying to bring back. Um, But people in Massachusetts probably know there's lots of elementary schools named for Christmas Addicts. Um, But yes, it at the time, people didn't pay that much attention to that particular racial uh, or any of his potential racial um, origins. Mm -hmm. If I may ask a follow-up question about the, going back to the trial, uh, I know that John Adams actually does use race in a particular way during the trial. Can you talk a little bit about um, how race is deployed in the trial to help make the case uh, uh, for his particular position? Yeah, so Adams is trying to thread this really um, tiny needle, right, where he's trying to say, okay, he's got to get his um, clients off and his clients are the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. So he needs to say they were not to blame. But at the same time, his as as a son of liberty, right, as an active political figure, he, and, and actually as a person who loves Boston, he really wants to, you know, keep Boston's nose clean too. So he doesn't want to blame Bostonians for what happened either, right? So what he ends up doing is saying, well, it wasn't real Bostonians because in his story, right, mm-hmm. real Bostonians are kind of middle-class white people. So he says, no, it was apprentices, it was Irish people, it was sailors, it was mixed-race people, which is the word that I'm not going to say here. And um, it is those people who really made trouble here, not real Bostonians. And that's his way of saying, you know, with the soldiers, yeah, of course they were nervous, but they weren't nervous because Bostonians were out of hand. 
Yeah, it was the other people who were. The other people, but not really us people. Right. Well, thank you, Bobby. Uh, Bonnie would like to know, John Adams was such an influential person in Boston. However, his popularity didn't carry through his presidency. In your opinion, what changed? How much time do we have? (laughs) That's a good one. I would say, um, yes, gosh. Okay, so. So I'm tempted to say it's just because really he didn't have a personality for prime time, but maybe that is a little mean. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure that there are people, Joanne Freeman, maybe others who, who would want to argue with me on that one. Um, but I think here um, I'm, I'm influenced by a wonderful book that I read recently by Mark Peterson called the city state of Boston, where he spent some time thinking about um about John Adams and really what what Mark helped me see is that the revolution created a nation that wasn't really what Adams had in mind in 1770 or 1776 when he was fighting for the revolution. And so the nation that he ends up presiding over is not really the nation he hoped it would be. And I think maybe there's a mismatch there. And that might explain some of it. That the nation's moved to another place and he really just wanted the city state of Boston. Yeah. It snowed a little too Jeffersonian for his liking, I would imagine. Maybe that's what happened. Exactly. Uh, thank you very much, Bonnie. We've got uh, a few more minutes for questions. Let's keep going. Uh, Bobby wants to ask, what did people outside of Boston or rural Massachusetts think of the events of the Boston Massacre? Whoa, that is a great question. Um, so people were you know, not surprisingly horrified. One of the really interesting things to do is see how quickly the newspaper reports spread, right, Um, up and down the sea, or primarily down the seaboard. There's not a lot of presses north. Um, And they're noticing and they're watching what happened. The real news actually, though, is what happens in London, right? So the people outside of Boston really there are Bostonians and, and the army. They're all looking to influence public opinion in London. And in fact, they, they produce those pamphlets where they collect the depositions and they actually end up getting reviewed in magazines that are like the equivalent of getting a review in like the Atlantic or, you know, the New Yorker. <laughs> and, um, you know, people like Tobias Smollett, who's a pretty big, you know, 18th century um, novelist writes reviews of these pamphlets where he's like, I don't know. I think both sides really have like exaggerated what's going on here. So, you know, in London, there's some skepticism, but it's clear that um, everyone notices this is more becomes more than just a little street skirmish. By the time they send out those pamphlets, um, everybody understands that they're fighting for PR. Thank you very much, Bobby. Elizabeth uh, would like to know, what was your least favorite person you found in your research? <laughs> we all have them. That's a great question. I know. We all have one. Okay. So, oh my gosh, I guess you guys all find me after this too. But yeah. I'm going to say that I'm just not fond of John Adams. He just doesn't do it for me. I, in fact, I kind of wanted to write this whole book without him in it. I kind of felt like it would serve him right. Um, but, you know, if we – I know. So, but I did it. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, Adams is, um, of course, he's he's a brilliant lawyer, and what he does there is brilliant. But mm-hmm. the um, the way in which he uses race in that argument is so distasteful to me, you know, that it's hard for me to move past my twenty first century understanding um, because what he's using are eighteenth century ideas of racism, and they work. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and that, so that one's hard for me. Um, you know, I could come up with somebody more fun too, but we can leave it at that. We'll stick with old John. All right. Why not? Uh, Kevin wants to know, is it true that soldiers hire themselves out for work other than doing their military service? Great yes. question. That's a great question. And that is part of the story, right, that I didn't quite get a chance to talk about. It. So, yes, soldiers were allowed during peacetime to hire themselves out and indeed also could get paid extra by, you know, they could hire themselves to the army. So many of them are, you know, tailors or seamsters of various sorts, and the army would pay them to make uniforms and things like that, right, is extra. But yes, they could hire out for farm work, they could hire out for all kinds of um, casual labor. And one of the stories is um, that they are hiring themselves out, and they absolutely are to mm -hmm. all kinds of people, barbers and people who make hats, and, and especially to the people who are making rope right on the rope walks, which is a big deal in Boston. And um, there is certainly a conflict between some of the soldiers and some of the other men working at this rope walk that happens in the days before the, um, the shooting. And one of the pamphlets takes this on as kind of a major cause of the you know, um, previous hostility between soldiers and civilians um, is this particular conflict, the rope walk. And that's been picked up by historians. And about 50 years ago, somebody said, oh, yes, they were angry about them because soldiers were willing to undercut the wages. Turns out we don't really know if that's true. That's probably not true. But certainly there was a conflict between them. And yes, they're, they are working all over town. Wow. Thank you, Kevin. Sandy wants to know, are there other uh, are there any other books on the topic you would recommend or you used in your research? Um, let's see. So on the Boston Massacre itself, there's uh, another book that I found and a couple books on the trial that are just wonderful, right? So um, famously and wonderfully is the one by Hillers O'Bell, simply called The Boston Massacre, uh, which came out for its 200th anniversary, so it's now 50 years old. Um, but still, he's the, such a he was such a meticulous scholar, especially of Adams' legal papers. Um, so you know, his interpretation is not mine, but what he knows about the trial still, I think, is spectacular. Also, Eric Kinderaker, um, who wrote a recent book. Um, also, you know, he's, he's wonderful on the trials, I think. Um, so good that I felt maybe I don't need to rehash all that ground myself. And then, like I said, if you're interested in Boston, it's a huge book, but Mark Peterson's book is wonderful. And even though it was 850 pages, I was kind of sad when I finished it. It was that <laughs> So, you know, it's a good book. Yes, it's a really good book. <laughs> Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, Laura would like to know, it's mentioned in the book that there was a rumor that the king had prepared a pardon for Captain Preston in the case that he was convicted. What do you think would have happened if a royal pardon had been tried to overturn the decision of a Boston court? That is a great question. Um, and, you know, hard to, hard to know exactly, but although I'll tell you, you know, that people at the time were terrified that um, there would in fact be a pardon that somehow the court itself would be there or the processes would be shortchanged and that there would be a riot or quite possibly the fear was that there would be a lynching. And, you know, the, question is, would, would that really happen? Um, years and years ago, wonderful historian named Pauline Mayer um, mm -hmm. 
pointed out that, you know, the mantra sort of of the Sons of Liberty in this moment was violence hurts the cause, right? So they were really trying to tap down on popular violence. So the real question is, would they have been able to keep down that popular violence? Or in fact, might Preston have been dragged from jail as some people feared and just, you know, strung up, you know, or shot like that deserter? Sure. Sure. We have time for two more questions. Uh, Elaine would like to know, would families be eligible for military medical treatment or was this a private expense? That Oh, I like that question. So families were, um, it was pretty much a private expense. That's what I could see from um, who is paying the doctor's bills for poor Jane Chambers, you know, smallpox ridden children and herself. Um, The one place where you see military medical treatment is actually in those um, hospitals for, um, for the epidemics, right? Sorry, the quarantine hospitals, right? Those are set up by the army um, as a public health kind of um, forced upon them by the town, but as a, um, as a, uh, as a, a way of trying to protect um, larger public health and the army paid for that. You didn't have to pay to go in because you were forced in there. Um, and then, you know, when, you know, when, and I will say that, you know, when you or your child died, if you couldn't afford to pay for the burial, the town would pay for that. Right. And we have those receipts. I see. Good old receipts. Good old receipts. Yeah. Amazing. All right. One more question. Uh, Leanne would like to know, which female in your book did you most identify with or admire? Let's see. So um, I I did, as it probably has come through in the last hour, um, you know, I myself, I think as, you know, a woman with children really found it incredibly moving every time I came across these women who are burying their children all over the British Empire, right? So Jane is just one. Um, she's the one I got to know the, the best. Um, but, you know, the other person I just really, really liked um, was a sister of one of the customs commissioners. Um, she writes a lot of bad poetry. She writes this dog roll. She's, um, she writes these very kind of snippy letters. And I find her very witty and very fun. Um, she actually, she never marries. She sort of keeps house for her brother and um, just sees herself as an observer. And, you know, and the historian in me just likes that position of someone who just steps back. It's like, what is going on here? And isn't it kind of strange and funny? Um, and so she really appealed to me too. That's uh, a great place to end it. Uh, well, thank you very much, Serena. This has been an absolute treat for me. I know it has been for our audience. Uh, thank you. Thanks, thanks to all of you for joining us this evening. As a reminder, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Serena's book, you can do so by clicking on the link that we're dropping in the comments. Uh, I'd just like to thank uh, Jeanette Patrick and Sarah Steo, who are operating things behind the scenes. So thanks very much uh, for your hard work. Be sure to tune in next week on April the 28th at 7 p.m. for a conversation with author Stephen Freed about his recent book, Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Benjamin Rush, The Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. I'm Jimmy Abuskey. Thanks to all of you out there. Good night and good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Abuskey. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.